Okay, time to write the script for this podcast. My laptop is fully charged and open. I've brewed a fresh cup of coffee. It's steam fogging up my reading glasses as I take a sip. Now for the important part. What to listen to in the background? Maybe some EDM? Nope, 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 that's not the mood I'm in. Hmm, maybe some lo-fi? with some Nintendo lo-fi. Oh yeah, that's it. I can do this. I like this. Minasan konnichiwa, and welcome to the Board Game Dojo, where we use science and history to learn more about board games and the people who play them. Today, we are talking about music, its effect on our brains, and whether it enhances or hinders the games we play. And I'm not just talking about whether it can set a mood or not, although we will talk about that, but whether music can help us think better or more clearly. So get out your notebooks and grab your favorite beverage, because class is in session. Ah, okay, I have a song stuck in my head, and I cannot figure out where it's from. So no better time than the start of class than to ask you all to help me figure it out, and then we can start class after that. It goes like, it's just that part. I know there's words after that, but I can't remember. What is it? Ah, Kanamari Damasi. That's it. Holy smokes, that's it. Thank you. Wow, that game was weird. The soundtrack was weird. The graphics were weird. The whole concept of just rolling around things into a ball was weird. It was fun, though. Good times. Well, as you can guess, that totally has to do with today's topic. I'm not very good at coming up with natural intros. Today, we are talking about the psychology of music. More specifically, how music affects our brains when we are playing games, what it adds or subtracts from the experience, and we will try to answer a question that, on the surface, seems completely subjective. Should you listen to music in the background? To do this, we are going to be dissecting what music is, how it came to be, and how our brains process it. That's a lot to get into, so let's just start with a quick poll. How many of you listen to music when you play board games? Hmm, okay, a fair number of you. How about who keeps the sound on when they play video games? That's more of you. How many listen to music when you study or do work? Ooh, okay, almost all of you. Keep them high, keep them up. Let me ask this. How many people think you should listen to music when you study or do work? Oh no, some of you are putting your hands out. Oh no, okay, huh, interesting. Okay, we're going to get to that, but I wanted to get a baseline first. So how did music start? Where does music come from? Well, if you can answer that, I think you'd get a Nobel Prize or some big prize because it is one of the most contentious arguments there is, with seemingly every bigwig having an opinion on the matter. Here is what we agree on. Every culture has one which is known as a cultural universal, which sounds very fancy. It may take different forms, it may be for different purposes, but each culture has music in some aspect. We at least know that it dates back to 40,000 BC or BP, because we have bone flutes that date back to that time that were found in present-day Germany. And I think that's about where the agreements stop. Now, music and its origins are often talked about in regards to language, and the argument often takes the form of well, which came first? There's three camps, generally speaking. Camp one is that music was a sort of proto-language, meaning that this camp believes that music led, at least indirectly, to creating what we know as language. 
Camp 2 is the opposite. That language is what led to music. Camp 3 says, well, hold on. Actually, they both came from the same ancestor. We could sit all day talking about these theories, but I just wanted to share one or two to show you that some of the brightest minds and people that even those who don't study psychology would recognize think about this question. Charles Darwin believed that music arose out of a need for sexual selection, maybe mating calls. Composer Richard Wagner was more of a subscriber of Camp 3, actually quite a famous one, and he termed the precursor as speech language. And yet others speak more about its practical implications, because one of the most important questions in trying to identify how it came to be is figuring out why it came to be. If you look at the human brain over the years and how it has developed, its development looks remarkably similar to the development of language. And that means that depending on the camp you belong to, also the development of music. One idea is that it developed because of the need to scare off predators. And trust me, if you heard me doing karaoke, you would definitely understand how singing can be terrifying to hear. It could also be as a nurturing tool that developed by mothers to help in the development and care of their child. And yet others believe that it started as a way to speak with the divine, which is an interesting theory and could explain why so many religions have a story of how music came to be, whether attributing it to a person or a group of beings. I could talk about this all day, but I want but what I want you to get from this is that humans have developed alongside music. Even though there are different ideas as to how it started, there is no denying that humans and music are interwoven tightly around the world, meaning that it has taken on new meanings, new purposes, and new forms. Which begs the question, why? I mean, what does music do for our brains? Who here had one or both of their parents insist upon learning an instrument when you were a kid? Maybe piano, violin, anything? I learned piano myself. Now, I don't know why my parents had me learn, but many parents had their kids learn because the predominant theory was that music exercised the right side of the brain, the creative side of their brain. If you played an instrument, studied music, your brain would be much more balanced. In fact, you can even hear Sherlock Holmes say something about this. Well, like many things we used to think, this is incorrect. Well, kinda. Music is, as it turns out, one of the rare things that stimulates the entire brain. For one thing, it is similar to cocaine. Researchers have found that music acts on the same parts of the brain that cocaine, and weirdly Oreos, do to release dopamine. This part of the brain is called the nucleus accumbens, and it seeks out pleasure. In fact, some call it the king of neurosciences, with dopamine be being the crown, because it really is the central reward center. And what we see is that Listening to music actually regulates the amount of dopamine in this region, making us feel more pleasurable. Both the activity of the nucleus accumbens and the levels of serotonin and dopamine were all found to be significantly higher in animals exposed to music. And get this, by even listening to unknown music, but music that we end up liking, we see this raised activity level. More than this, music has been shown to have an interesting effect on memory. Now, let's be honest. By a show of hands, how many of you have thought about how you can seemingly remember the lyrics to a song, even when you don't like, but forget important details? Yeah, music does that to us, partly because our brains like to remember what makes us feel pleasure, what makes us feel stimulated. Makes sense, right? But another thing that's been put forth is that music might trigger survival instincts in us. Remember in other lectures how the amygdala is the part of the brain that stimulates fight or flight? Well, 
With music, the amygdala may be triggered to make us feel nervous or scared. Think about during a horror movie or a thriller. That creepy music that sends shivers down your spine. Why do you do this? Well, the amygdala in the hippocampus are feeding off of past memories, recalling that something scared you, terrified you, and is trying to predict that it'll happen again. It leaves you feeling anticipatory, or maybe flighty, or maybe makes you cover your eyes. This may also be why it's so jarring, so eerie when you watch a movie that's a thriller or horror and there's just a part of the movie with no music. Something is happening, but there's no music going on. Your brain is trying desperately to latch onto any kind of clues so that you can prepare yourself for what's about to happen, but it just can't. Music can do more than just encode fight or flight responses, however. It can help us retrieve memories, and it can help us encode new ones. This has made whole new fields of study and some fields of study seen as more relevant and important, one of which being music therapy. One such study, done in 2019 by Veronica Abraham and her cohorts, is especially interesting to me. They had participants between the ages of 60 and 90 participate in two studies that used music improvisation and imitation. First, they would get information, which the first study was neutral, and then the second study was more emotional. They would then play something like percussion instruments, which for more than half of them was a new thing. After that, they would then be tested in how much they could recall, whether that was drawing and locating something or remembering items off of a list. This would be done immediately and then after a week or two. Two especially fascinating things were found. The first being that overall, it was significantly shown that the music improvisation enhanced memory in these older adults, both in the population of former musicians and non-musicians. Even more, this enhancement was greater when it was connected to an emotional attachment rather than a neutral one. In the immediate free recall, the negative images were better remembered, and in the deferred free recall, the one that came later, both positive and negative images, and in the deferred recognition, the three types of images were better recognized. In other words, over time, the participants remembered or recognized more information. These results would indicate that there was an interaction between musical improvisation and visual memory, and the greatest effect was found for the emotion-laden information. Now, why would this be? There are a couple of theories that have been thrown around. One would be the effect that the auditory cortex plays on your brain networks. When you hear music, it might strengthen your emotional connections you make to a stimulus by activating the pathways we talked about earlier, while also activating the memory centers of the brain, like the hippocampus, music might just strengthen our memory of visual cues. So the idea would be that by listening to music, we can better encode not only the lyrics of songs we listen to a billion times, but also what we are seeing or reading if they have an emotional attachment. This could be why sometimes you hear a song and it elicits a very specific memory, like playing a video game, your first love, or a birthday party, even if you haven't thought about it in a long time. What I like about this study is that they differentiated between musicians and non-musicians. First, they were able to find that with neutral stimuli, musicians tended to see a greater result. But more than that, when there was an emotional stimulus, the non-musicians could catch up, meaning that music can help even those with no musical training at all. But I want to explore the idea of musicians having an improvement to visual memory for a second, because that hits at another way in which music uses the whole brain. By learning to play music, you're training the gray matter in your brain that sends signals to the body. A theory goes that playing music is like working your brain out. You build up myelin sheath, the thing that carries signals to your neurons. The more you play, the more myelin sheath you gain, and the faster these signals move. So what you think of as muscle memory is really just you building up this myelin sheath. And this practice has been shown to help increase memory, 
motor skills, and your ability to learn new things. But like working out, you have to keep it up. So when your parents told you to practice instruments, even though it might have been for an incorrect reason, they really were promoting you to get better at learning. Now, this is all well and good, but how about listening to music and when should we listen to it in the background? Isn't that what we are supposed to be learning about today? Yes, patience, young grasshopper. Because this is something that we are still learning about and still fighting about a bit. Where is the line between music being an enhancement and music being a distraction? Have you ever been driving and you get lost and the first thing you do almost instinctively is turn down the radio? It's because we, as humans, we suck at multitasking. So let's take listening to the radio while driving as an example. We, of course, use our five senses all day to process the world around us. We perceive, we encode, and our brain all the while is using selective attention to decide where our focus needs to be. The brain is constantly evaluating what should be its primary task, the chief task the brain focuses on, and its secondary task, the concurrent task that gets less focus. The brain's ability to switch back and forth between its tasks is called attention switching, and it comes with a price. When the brain switches its focus and attention from one task to another, it's fast, but it's not instantaneous, meaning that we could miss an important street sign, or worse, a pedestrian. Driving in and of itself becomes a low-load task, something that we have practiced a lot so doesn't require our sharpest focus. Think about how many times you might have driven from point A to point B and don't remember the drive at all. During these times, your brain allows distractors, though. Like a good song, or a good podcast, like this one, I hope. That all changes when we are going to someplace new, somewhere unfamiliar. Suddenly we need to look for street signs, pay attention to the GPS, be careful of one-way streets, and sudden turns. The situation went from a low-load task to a high-load task. Now you might be thinking, well, Eric, I am an excellent multitasker. I multitask all the time. Well, what you're doing is actually doing things in sequential order. Your brain is just so quick at doing it that you just think you're doing things simultaneously. No matter how good you think you are, though, our brains are limited in how many things it can line up to do before it just gets overwhelmed. For example, your brain can either handle visual driving-related tasks, like watching street signs in an unfamiliar area, or it can handle car karaoke. That's because these two tasks both compete for the brain's available resources. Multitasking creates a mental traffic jam, and instead of doing well at one task, we, in the end, perform poorly on each task as a result we might miss the turnoff we were looking for, make errors we would normally never make, and we end up remembering less information overall. When the brain is forced to switch rapidly from task to task, it doesn't perform as well as it does when it can focus on one thing at a time. In fact, some studies have supported the idea that multitasking increases our error rate by as much as 50%. Now let's say we add a third task into the mix. When you introduce a third task, the brain's prefrontal cortex, which makes the executive decisions, will discard the one it considers the least important. It just can't handle all this. We've only got so much we can do, so much we can handle, before our brain just says, nope. This is called your attentional capacity. Especially when we are getting to the point when we are overwhelmed, or when we are tired, maybe when everyone is talking all at once, our brain tries to edit our environment. We stop listening to passenger conversations, our field of vision shrinks, and we turn down the radio's volume or turn it off altogether in an effort to throw all of our focus into vision or spatial relationships. We focus, and all of the other chatter or music is just a distraction that can make us unable to concentrate on the important thing that is in front of us. Although this example is about driving, this is also the foundation of why many people believe that you shouldn't study while listening to music. If you are doing a high-load task, adding information to your brain, memorizing words, 
wouldn't music distract you? You'd be trying to input words into your memory while also multitasking by listening to music. This would put on a strain on your working memory, preventing you from meaningful study. Well, this can be the case. While it has been found that multitasking, listening to music while studying especially, can be distracting, there are a lot of variables that can either make the distraction, well, more distracting, or make it almost non-existent. The first thing is actually how introverted you are. A study done in 2016 found that introverts were more detrimentally harmed by background music and noise than than extroverts were. So if you're really introverted, background noise might be a bigger problem for you than your extroverted classmates who might feel energized by being around conversation and music. Another thing that can hinder your studies would be lyrics. When a song has high speeds, high volumes, and or fast lyrics, the ability to concentrate is lower. So if I have a loud rap song, I'm going to be more distracted than something by Enya. Although Enya might put me to sleep altogether. But weirdly, the biggest difference was just in a song that was both loud and fast, not so much the wordiest songs. But the last thing I want to talk about is the Mozart effect. How many of you have heard of the idea that you can play Mozart for your baby and it'll raise their IQ? Or in general, if you listen to Mozart, it can raise your IQ for a bit of time. It's a really common thing. And working for Target, I sometimes see Mozart baby stuff come trickling in. Well, this was greatly exaggerated. While the original researcher has said, wait, 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 no, I didn't say general intelligence, I just said spatial intelligence, hold on, people went crazy for it. And some people really did see an increase in their scores after listening to Mozart. But the key thing wasn't the Mozart itself, at least not generally speaking. The important thing was that people who saw an increase in scores were the people who liked Mozart. By listening to music that we like, we are put in better moods, enabling us to feel more excited, alert, and just overall be in a better state of function. For example, there were some really cool studies in the 90s about the Blur effect. This is Blur. You might know them for this sports anthem. Kids who listen to Blur would do better on their tests. But why? Well, like I said, the kids were listening to music they enjoyed. The researchers found that the students were more likely to persevere through trouble, take on more challenging tasks, and in general, just put forth more effort into their studies, all because they had been put in a better mood by the song that they liked. They got energized, focused, almost in a trance state. I guess you could call it a flow. And now we've gotten to it. Gaming, music, what does it do to our brains, and should we be listening to it while we trade in the Mediterranean, negotiate deals, and destroy each other's spaceships? Oh, I'm going to butcher his name, but popularized by Mihai Sistovmihai? in 1975, and built upon in positive psychology by himself and Jean Nakamura, the theory was first thought about in relation to artists. Why would artists get so lost in their work that they would forget to sleep, eat, and just completely lose track of time? After many studies, Nakamura and Michal came up with six defining characteristics of the flow state. 1. Intense and focused concentration on the present moment. 2. Merging of action and awareness. 3. A loss of reflective self-consciousness. 4. A sense of personal control or agency over the situation or activity. 5. A distortion of temporal experience, as one's subjective experience of time is altered. And 6. Experience of the activity as intrinsically rewarding, also referred to as an autotelic experience. Over the years, some characters have been added, notably three in particular that I want to talk about today. Immediate feedback, feeling the potential to succeed, 
and feeling so engrossed in the experience that other needs become negligible. So what this means is that you can't really get into a flow when doing something passive, like taking a shower or watching TV. You need to be actively engaged in the activity. A flow state is great. It has numerous benefits for people, including a better sense of well-being, greater happiness, heightened creativity, and interestingly enough, being in a flow state helps regulate emotions. In games, well, games are one of the most popular and studied examples of things that put people into a flow state. One of the most popular examples in the physical space is chess, which was put forth as an example by Michel himself, mentioning that it has been adapted over centuries into an intrinsically satisfying game. And if you want to hear more about the history of chess and its development, you can go back and listen to episode three of the podcast. I'll put the link in the show notes. What makes games so interesting to study is that they have an end and are played, most of the time, purely for pleasure. And games give us immediate feedback, one of the many necessary characteristics of a flow state. We can actively engage in a challenge, receive the immediate feedback, concentrate, learn, and adapt. And as anyone who has lost themselves in a game of Civ 6, Minecraft, or Twilight Imperium can tell you, after a little while, time becomes an imaginary thing, and soon you wouldn't have even realized that six hours have flown by. And the amazing part of it is that these games that are especially prone to flow states, they give you something to look back on. I can see the civilization I built, or I can see my hopefully expansive tech tree in TI4. I can see the dungeons I built in, I beat in Zelda, or the stars I collected in Mario. And all the while, I felt a sense of wonder and amazement. So we learned that music like Blur can put us in a good mood and get us focused, and that games can put us in a flow state. So how about games with music? Sometimes you can combine two good things and not get a good result. As Jim Gaffigan joked, fruit is good, cake is great, fruitcake is nasty crap. Well, this idea of flow state in games matching with music has been a hot topic as of late with the growth of VR. It is especially important in something called virtual presence, which basically means that you are somewhere created by a computer, but you have to feel that the place is tangible in order to accept it. So one thing that designers are trying to get right is putting players into a flow state, making them feel lost in the world. Some early games tried just blasting you with sensory stimuli, and it made people feel sick. But lately, designers have been aided by sound engineers to create a musical soundtrack that makes people subconsciously feel not only that they are present in the environment, but feel emotionally attached to it. It makes the experience memorable, which we talked about earlier, but it also creates a place that makes the player feel invested. By adding music to the game, by making players feel the sense of anxiety in a horror game or wonder when they come to a beautiful view, they push players to take on increasing amounts of challenge. They lose that sense of self, pushing forward to continue the experience and build off of the intrinsic motivation that they have continued to foster in their play. And a lot of this is happening subconsciously. In one study, players were completely unable to match the songs they heard during the game to the game itself. It'd be like I played the Mario theme and you didn't know it was from Mario. But that wasn't the most interesting part of this study. The interesting part is that they matched the emotion they felt during that song in the context of the narrative that it occurred in during the game. What this meant was that while there were narrative parts happening in the game, the music might have become a part of the story itself to the point that the players didn't recognize the song in and of itself as a separate entity, but saw it as part of the story. Maybe it was an epic song during a boss fight, or a sad song when an important character died. They couldn't tell you the game it was from, but they could tell you that the music made them curious, which made sense because that song would have been from a scene of exploration in the game. This is such a phenomenal idea, because what it means is that music can not only put us in a flow state, 
that is the positive mood, the lack of temporal awareness, but it can make us participate in a certain way in the game. It can encourage us to explore, to participate, and to challenge ourselves. We are now in the crux of my argument. My theory is that music heightens our enjoyment of the games themselves, and it is for this very reason. When I play games with people, I am signing a social contract with everyone at the table. We are going to play by a standard set of rules that we all agree upon. We are going to try our best, and we won't hold grudges. We are, for the next period of time, going to throw ourselves into this world on the table made of cardboard. Immersion is a key component of this. Like VR that we talked about earlier, highly thematic board games establish a sense of deep immersion in this new reality. Think about a good tabletop RPG or a good war game. The mechanics, sure, are important, but there is also something amazing about just how much the inner workings, the writing, the art on the art itself can mirror the theme in a realistic way, or at least a way that matches your idea of what is happening. When the players can engross themselves in this world, it all goes according to plan. But as some researchers have found that hinder flow, social interaction, and downtime. Think about it, even in your game group, how many different player styles are there? What are the chances that someone is having a bad day, that they cannot get into it? What happens when someone's taking way too long on a turn? Oh my god, come on, Peter, get on with it already! Well, I believe that this gap can be filled with music. As we've talked about, music can make us feel emotional. It can put us in a mood that matches the game state. It can keep our brains processing. It can keep us in the game world. Studies on background music while studying has also supported the idea that we remember things like rules, definitions, and thought patterns when we listen to the same music. So for example, if I listen to an absolutely awesome Paramore song right now while I'm learning about Adler's theory of inferiority, when I hear the song again, it'll remind me of what I studied. By putting myself in the same environment with the same background music, I can return my mental state to that moment. So my theory is that by keeping background music on during the game, this will keep players in the right mindset to continue the game. For example, by playing Afghani music while playing Pax Pamir, players can keep the setting in mind, what we are fighting for, the theme, the governments. This is especially powerful when we have no familiarity with the subject. It is transporting us there through music. And this idea is actually backed up by numerous studies that say that putting on music, whether they be sound effects, background music, or a mix of the two, immerses people and keeps them interested, alert, and inside of the game. One study took a look at players playing the game Fuse. Fuse is a real-time game where players work cooperatively to disarm a bomb. Now this game is really low complexity, and so anyone can play it. What the study did was take the participants and had them listen to the app that comes with the soundtrack and timer. There was also a time when they only had the timer, and there was one time they would do it with no sound at all. Two things stood out to me about this study. First was that, as expected, both enjoyment and the feeling of tension in the game was highest when there was sound and timer. You probably could have guessed that based on my lead up to the study. But the reasoning was also interesting to me. The players didn't so much talk about how it made the game thematic. It didn't make them feel like a story was happening, even though they were somewhat creating a story of either blowing up or not. What they said the sound did was create an atmosphere, and that this is different than the theme itself. It didn't feel that much like bomb diffusers, but rather what the music did was give them the feeling of tenseness, drama, and intensity, whereas without the music, the game actually felt relaxing. And what this seems to support is that background music can actually fundamentally change the feeling of the game itself. A game can go from a quick, dramatic, high-intensity game where a clock is counting down and you can feel each mistake in a stressful way into a low-stress puzzle to be solved like a casual day at the beach. And although the game felt tense, the music kept them there, focused, 
energized, in a state of flow. And that's ultimately what I think music is wonderful for. It can not only make the game more atmospheric, it can keep the game moving. It can keep the environment lively, and it can keep the players in the right headspace to play. There is nothing to be more fun than having my friends over, popping on a playlist, and having so much fun that the hours fly by and I'm left feeling a sense of achievement and happiness. The music makes me feel energized to challenge the game and do my best. And it's not just me. Studies show that players are more motivated to continue playing even when they are failing, meaning that I can play long games with my friends, games like Food Chain Magnet or Pax Premier where players can be out pretty early in the game, and yet music keeps them engaged. And then, later on, when I hear that music again, I can keep the memories of those games, the fun that was had, the friends I met, and hopefully my victory. I can remember the city I built, or the time I won as the trader, or the incredible shot my friend did in Ice Cool. Music is an excellent companion to games, and I hope that today's lecture shows you that it can make us feel an emotional attachment to games, put us in a flow state, and enhance our gaming experience. Thank you so much for joining us today. Class is dismissed. Thank you so much for listening to the Board Game Dojo today. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and subscribe to us on YouTube for some game reviews. I'll leave the links to all of those in the show notes below. Arigatou gozaimashita. Danne! Danne!